I am uh, eager this morning to uh, get to Ruth chapter 4. Can you believe it? And uh, after a whole, well, almost the entire first quarter of uh, preaching out of the book of Ruth, we're finally getting to the last chapter of it. There's only four chapters in that book, so I don't know how it took me so long, but here we are. And uh, I am eager to share with you a message uh, that is still in our, in our big theme of uh, they asked for a king, but um, the, uh, the message this morning is the reluctant deliverer, the reluctant deliverer. And uh, I want to take you to the story of Boaz and Ruth, where Boaz is not reluctant at all no. to redeem Ruth and Naomi. But I want to take a look at uh, I want to take a look at another redeemer in the passage, or a potential redeemer who does not fulfill his responsibility. And uh, we're going to take a look at him, and then we're going to take a look at another story of a reluctant deliverer from Genesis chapter thirty-eight. And um, and then what I want to do is I want to talk about our reluctance to pursue the will of God in our lives and why it is difficult for us to say yes to Jesus. And, uh, and then I want to finish up with that First Peter chapter 2 passage again that talks about God having redeemed us. And I want to talk about how Jesus was most assuredly not a reluctant deliverer for you and for me. So that's the journey that we're going to take today. And I want to read to you first. Ruth chapter 4 in its entirety. So if you're with me, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. And let's read together. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside here, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. And then he said to the Redeemer... Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Eli Melech. And I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders, my people, the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. <laughs> then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. And then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Eli Melech and all that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, 
We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who brought, uh, who, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. That's Ruth chapter 4. Wonderful, wonderful story. And uh, the lead up to that has been absolutely beautiful. And it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. I just love the story. What I find uh, fascinating in this passage is the emergence of an, a character who has, to this point, not really had, he's uh, just had no influence, no, we've had no interest in him, we didn't even know he was there, until chapter 3, somewhere in the middle of the, of the threshing floor incident, we became aware that there was this potential, potential other redeemer. And, uh, and he, he makes a, a bit of an entrance on the stage here, uh, but it's interesting how he's portrayed in the language. And the Hebrew language has given some clues uh, to the way we're supposed to respond to this fellow. And, of course, the way the story plays out, we recognize that he's not altogether all that important, uh, except that it adds drama. It certainly adds drama. It makes the story even better. However, I think the Lord has included this part of the story for us because it's a challenge, a challenge to you and me. When we discover what this reluctant redeemer actually loses out on, it is profound. And uh, his, his willingness to be involved in the story at first when there was a benefit to him in the immediate, well, that's, that's clear. But his unwillingness to sacrifice for the, for the purpose of obeying God, results in his exclusion from God's story in terms of being a good guy. As a matter of fact, let's take a look at one little word that uh, commentators pull out, and I've read it quite a lot over the last couple of months as I've researched and read through many, many commentaries on the book of Ruth. In chapter 4, this seems to be the big deal. Most commentators talk about it, and I wouldn't have known this had I not read a commentary. So I'm assuming those of you who've never read commentaries probably wouldn't catch it either. So I'm going to share it with you, but it's not mine. It's not original for me. It just happens to be in the original language text, and therefore it is of importance. Take a look at the way Boaz invites this guy into, into a transaction. Boaz had gone up from the gate, uh, and he sat down there. 
the gate of the city is the place where everybody enters and exits. In ancient times, uh, in, in these uh, you know, 3,000 year, year ago times, uh, the city would have been a walled city, a place of protection, where people would have retreated in the evening time and the gates would have been shut and barred, and that would, that would, would be a way they kept themselves from marauders and so forth. Their fields, which they farmed, would have been outside the city walls, and the fields could be vulnerable at nighttime, uh, but most uh, marauders would, uh, would probably attack during the day. But the city at night, uh, under the cover of night, that would be... Um, a, a place where where people could come in and steal and, and, and so forth, and thieves could break in. Uh, so a walled city was a safe place for people to be. So people lived in the city. Most likely, Boaz lived in a house in the city as well. Maybe he had a residence on a farm outside, but that would have been, he would have been vulnerable there. The gate of the city, therefore, was a place where everybody would enter and exit. And in the morning, uh, when the sun was up, uh, all the people, all the men of the village would be heading out, the men of the city would be he heading out to their fields and their farms and whatever it is that they needed to do. And uh, the way that the society would be set up in those days is you would have people who were recognized as elders in the city. I would suppose in some way, like councilmen in our own towns. And uh, in a city the size of what Bethlehem would have been, there may have been 60 or 70 of these people, maybe even more. Boaz collected 10 of them. But first, before he collected them, he found the man that he was, he was after. This other redeemer who had a greater claim to the lands of Elimelech than Boaz did. For those of us who don't understand the way that that works, land was divvied out during the, um, during the conquest time. Joshua handed out uh, parcels of land to the different tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes, and each tribe received an allotment of land. And within that allotment, the land was divided up into, into stands, into lots, into, into farm, farmable areas, which were then given to clans. And the clans would divide them up based on the number of men within the clan. In fact, if a man had daughters and did not have any sons, he could leave his inheritance to his daughters, as is the case with Caleb. Um, and, uh, and, and others. But, um, but there was, uh, there was a, a sacredness to the land. Land was given within the clan and it was to remain within the clan because God had given only so much land to the people. For those who have trouble with a conquest story uh, that you read in the book of Joshua and then uh, further in the book of Judges, those who see the violence of God during that time and who are offended by the violence of God, I can say, I understand, I'm with, I'm with you. Some of that violent language certainly does set off uh, a bunch of red flags for, for us in our day and age. Uh, but it is important to note that um, you know, we don't want to be anachronistic with that. We don't want to bring, we don't want to bring our uh, 21st century version of morality and superimpose it over theirs when we don't understand their culture and weren't there amongst them. So uh, hard for us to judge something that we're so far separated from. For whatever it's worth, it is important to note that when God said to the people of Israel, go out and take the promised land, he gave them very specific borders and boundaries. In fact, if some of you are reading the reading plan from this morning, uh, the, the, that little um, uh, Bible reading plan that some of us are on, you will have noticed that uh, the land was divvied up today and, and we saw portions of land being given to different people. That was today's reading. But God was very clear, the border stretches so far on the east, so far on the west, so far on the north, so far on the south, because God did not allow his people to become empire builders. He was 
giving them a, an inheritance, a promised land, but that was it. The, the borders were set, and that was going to be the extent of it because God wanted his people to be satisfied with what he gave them, not with what they could gain by their own, the exercise of their own will, if that makes sense. He says you're going to have to go in and take the land. You're going to have to take it because there are other inhabitants there who don't want you to have it, and you're going to have to fight for what I'm giving you. But I'm not giving you the entire world. I'm giving you this portion, and that's going to be for you. Now, think as we consider the kingdom of heaven, we need to recognize that God gives us a limitation as to how much we're allowed to go after. So that does set itself up in opposition to the way of the world. The, uh, the, the largest corporation in the world, as I understand, is, uh, is Apple, uh, Apple, <laughs> Apple Corporation. They're bigger than anybody by, by far. And, uh, and their goal is to rule the world, right, with technology and various other things. And they get bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, if you think about the other large corporations of the world, they do the same thing. It's, it's about conquest and, and overtaking. And if you think about land and people fighting over land, of course, we have, we have uh, Mr. Putin uh, in Russia who seems to be uh, trying to build an empire. At least that's the narrative that we have been told. So I don't really know what the truth is there, but he's fighting uh, a very ugly war and Ukraine is fighting for their lives. And so uh, we recognize that men are always fighting for more. They're not satisfied with what they have. So if I can just quickly draw a little, uh, a little nugget out of this uh, in terms of land and, and what's eventually going to become Eli Melek's land that needs to be redeemed here. As we talk about this, this idea of land and then look at that within the kingdom of God, here's core value for members of the kingdom of heaven. Are you ready for this? Be satisfied with what God gives you. Okay? Be satisfied with what God gives you. If you want to write down notes, then write that one down. That's an important point. Be satisfied. Be content with what the Lord has given you. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't allowed to grow our businesses, but the purpose of growing our businesses is not identification. It's not self-actualization. It is, by all means, if we grow businesses, let it be for the benefit of the kingdom of heaven. Let it be for the benefit of our neighbors and the people around us. But there is something that God has given to each one of us which we need to take and be content with. There is a level of influence. There is a sphere that God gives us. From time to time, from season to season, he may shape that, he may change that. But our attitude is not, let me make something of myself. Our attitude is, let me make something of God. Let me make God's name big, and I'll let God do whatever he wants to do with my name. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldees, where he could have made a name for himself. And God said, you go to the place that I'll show you, and I will make for you a name. And that's the flip side you know that's god just takes our kingdom version and flips it over and gives us this so hold fast to that when god gives us an inheritance you ought to fight for it but don't fight for more be satisfied with what you have well as it turns out there's a little bit of a leeway here because in this case eli melech has died and his two sons have died and his land is now going to be lying fallow and uh, Naomi, who still owns the land, may have leased it out, I don't know, but Naomi still owns the land, but she can't farm the land. She's, she's not capable. She's an elderly woman. Uh, she doesn't have any sons. She doesn't have any resources to be able to hire staff to run the farm for her. So she's in desperate need of redemption. And the redemption basically means she needs someone to come in who will take over the land and 
pay her for it and, uh, and allow the inheritance to remain within the family. It may be that if nobody redeems her, Naomi's whole line will be forgotten. What will happen to that land? Well, it'll go to, it'll go to the town. And the town will have to determine who is the next person in line to receive that land. The land will not go to a different tribe, but it'll lie fallow. Somebody needs to redeem the land because the land needs to be worked. And God cares about that. So Boaz, in this situation, recognizes his civil or uh, civic responsibility, and that is to help a woman in need. He also recognizes that the other redeemer has a civic responsibility who, to this point, hasn't done anything about it. So he gathers him. He says, come sit down here. And he says, turn aside, friend. See that word friend right there? Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. Uh, that's in verse um, 2, right? No, it's in verse 1. Turn aside, friend, and sit down here. So the, the word friend right there is actually an interesting, uh, an interesting Hebrew combination of words. And... Um, and the, I'm not sure if my pronunciation is uh, is correct, but it's kind of a it's kind of a sort of a a rhyming couplet. Uh, the word is polonialmoni, polonialmoni, and it means nobody, or so and so, or such and such. It's a it's the same. It's, that's the best translation for us. It's like so. I went down to such and such a place and did this and that. It's nondescript. This man is part of a real story, real people with real names. We know this isn't just a fabricated story because we actually have a genealogy that's given us with specific names of specific people. Recognize that? This man, who is a specific person, who actually has rights to the farm of Elimelech and, the, and, the, um, and, and, and has the right to redeem this, to buy it, to be the person, to buy it from Naomi, to give her the money she's going to need to just retire in the village, whatever she might need. He has the right to do this. He has no name. And that's intentional. The word is used very rarely in Scripture, uh, only a half a dozen times or so, uh, as far as I understand. And, uh, but it's used very specifically here. It's the only place in the whole book it's used. And it's used about this guy who actually turns out in God's economy to be so-and-so, such-and-such. Now, we know that God knows every one of us by name. We know that he knows the number of hairs on our heads, right? God is not ignorant of anybody in this particular book. This man gets written out of the story as so-and-so. He is an extra, although he has words. He actually speaks. We don't even know who he is. In the credits that run at the end of the movie, his name's going to be so-and-so, Polonial Moni. And that's important. That's important because written into the very text of the Hebrew is this idea that we need to lay hold of. While we're looking at the wonderful, beautiful redemption that happens in Naomi's life because a baby comes along and ultimately redeems Naomi. You know, it's not Boaz who redeems Naomi, but, but it's Ruth's baby who redeems Naomi and gives her purpose in life. More than money for her farm gives her the, 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 the inheritance that she gets to. I mean, it's, it's weird that the baby gives the inheritance to the grandmother. It's kind of weird, but that's, that's how this whole story works. But... But while we're looking at that beauty, we're supposed to see the reluctant Redeemer and what he loses out on.
the power of the story of Ruth is, is really in the, in the last couple of lines where we discover who the baby becomes and whose line comes from that child. And as you already know, because we've mentioned it many times, the genealogy that we have in the book of Matthew points out this story, and it shows that Jesus comes from this line, that Boaz and Ruth were Jesus' ancestors. Prior to that, in Old Testament times, this story would have had great import because the greatest king that Israel ever had was King David, apart from Jesus. The greatest king who actually ruled over Israel, all 12 tribes, of the extent of the border, who extended the borders to the very uh, lines that God had drawn for them. That king came from this union. And that is the power of Boaz's yes. That is the power of Ruth's chutzpah. That is the power of this amazing story that's even prophesied by the women who speak over uh, over Boaz and over the child that's coming, when they prophesy, may the child that comes to you through this woman be like Perez. May she be to you. May this woman be to you like the, like the matriarchs of Israel. And they prophesy and the Lord actually honors their prophetic word and does exactly that. That is what so-and-so misses. Because he is so caught up in his own sense of the future, that he cannot even think that God's got something bigger in store for him. Poloni Almoni, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, of course now you're going to call him that for the rest of your days too. Poloni, and for us, uh, Poloni is like a, kind of a sandwich meat. Um, yeah, it was, we call it Poloni. What do you guys call it here? Bologna. You call it Bologna. Bologna Almoni over here. Okay, I grew up with this a big pink roll of lunch meat, this big. We used to love it. I used to you know, eat half of it in the city. It was great. Still do. It's good stuff. Baloney Almoni over here is so caught up in what he can see. I wonder if he was a planner. I wonder if he was a, uh, a preparer. I wonder if he was a, a man who paid attention to numbers. I have to read myself into this guy, into this guy's life, because some of you know I uh, I, I over prepare for stuff, and uh, and I, I think ahead, and I I like to try and consider every contingency, and uh, and I like to prepare so that everything works out well in the end. That's my that's my way. So I I like an idea, and then I think about all the ways that idea can go wrong, and then I plan to make sure that if it starts going wrong, I've got something to put it back on track. How about you guys? Is there anybody else like me out there? Not a, not a one of you. Not a one of you. Poloni Almoni sees the, uh, he sees the opportunity. He looks at this and says, oh yeah, I could add some land. That'd be great. I mean, the way land works is you farm it, right? And um, uh, if you have an extra field and you can sow it, you're going to have a bigger crop. And if you have a bigger crop, you can probably sell it. And if you can sell it, you probably have more money, which means you can build bigger barns and you can have a little bit more to give your kids. Maybe you can take a vacation down at the beach once in a while, which would be a big deal for a farmer over here. And uh, maybe there were all kinds of things that he could think about. He's like, wow, that's a really cool thing. Now, here's the problem. The problem is he should have been thinking about this when Naomi arrived back. 
Because when Naomi came back, she was clearly destitute. She clearly didn't have a whole lot of anything. She came in saying in chapter 1, don't even call me Naomi, which means kindness or goodness. Don't even call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has been, he has dealt bitterly with me. And she comes in and she's got nothing. And at that point, he should have, I mean, because trust me, everybody knew. The whole town was abuzz. They were all talking about it. So it's not a very big town. Maybe 70 elders. I mean, there were 10 that were chosen here. So it might even have been smaller than that. We probably have 10 elders in this church if we were to do elders the same way they did. So maybe it's a group not a whole lot bigger than this. Kind of think it might have been. But regardless, I'm sure he heard about them. And I'm sure he knew that there was opportunity there. Why? Does Boaz know that this guy has the right to redeem? But this guy doesn't know he has the right to redeem. What kind of life is he living? What rock is he crawling out from underneath of? Here's the thing. In the kingdom of God, God has designs for bigger things than what you and I can dream up. In the kingdom of God... He works with strange mathematics. He takes five loaves and two fish from a kid and feeds multitudes. God does strange things with the elements. He walks in the midst of fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He rides upon upon the, the waves of the Galilean Sea with his shoes as his boat. He walks across the water, stills the storm. God does strange things. God takes people like Peter in prison and walks him through shut gates. And he has the gates open and close. It's like going to the CVS. And uh, God does more than we could ask or imagine. But Baloney Almoni over here, he can't fathom that. All he can think about is you get what you work for. And I've got to protect my inheritance. So the moment something comes up which is difficult for him, that may put his own inheritance at risk. It may jeopardize his longevity, his abilities. I mean, I don't know, maybe he already had 14 wives and he's not interested in any more. Probably not, but maybe he was married, maybe he wasn't married. Seems like he must have been, must have had kids of his own. I don't want to do that. I don't want to, I don't want to jeopardize my own inheritance, he says. How is taking care of widows and orphans going to jeopardize your inheritance? Well, because if he takes this farm and then he raises up a child in the name of Eli Melech's son, Malon or Kilion or whoever, and, and, and then he has to split the inheritance, then, then it's, it's going to, you know, that's going to damage his own children's inheritance. Not really, because if you, if you buy the farm and you put some investment in, you get your investment back and then the farm continues to grow and then you give that farm to the, the, the next you know, to the next heir, it hasn't actually affected your inheritance at all. It's maybe a little bit of extra work in the beginning, but it's a great joy in the end. And you get to take care of the other people around you, widows and orphans, essentially, right? Nope. Mm -mm. No, no. Don't ask me to do any more 
than I'm already doing. Don't ask me to do anything for the kingdom's sake. Don't ask me to do anything to make Israel a better place to live in. Don't ask me to take up my responsibility with the people around me who might be in need. Don't ask me to counsel anybody. Don't ask me to sit and listen to somebody who's in distress. Don't ask me to have a Bible study in my house. Don't ask me to put a little extra in the offering. Don't ask me to drive in the middle of the night to go to a Bible study somewhere. God forbid. It might jeopardize my own well-being. Don't ask me to give up my vacation time to go on a short-term mission. God forbid. I might get too tired. Here's the problem, Baloney. <laughs> That's a good one, Scott. Scott says you're full of it. <laughs> Here's the problem. You can't see what God has in store. No eye has seen, no mind has conceived what the Lord has in store for those who love him. I'm not quoting it properly, but it's something like that, isn't it? Is it possible that God's first choice was Mr. So-and-so? But Mr. So-and-so said no. How about you? In what way are you saying no to the challenges that God is putting in front of you? In what ways are you saying that's too much to ask of me? That's too much to put on my plate. I understand that Mr. So-and-so would not have perhaps lived long enough to see his grandson become king. But maybe he would have. But regardless of whether he lived long enough to see that, his other sons would have seen that. And his family line would have been elevated out of obscurity, out of the no-name section. And he would have been given a front row seat in the plans of God. Mr. So-and-so could have emerged from the primordial soup, as it were. And he could have become a name that the whole world would have known. Boaz is known all over the world. Wherever the Bible goes, the story of Boaz and Ruth goes. Wherever Christ is preached, the story of Boaz and Ruth is shared because the genealogy of Jesus is read every Christmas. The genealogy of Jesus is read by everybody who wants to know where did this man come from? Who is this God-man, this son of God, son of David, son of, son of man who comes to deliver us from our sins? And everywhere the gospel is preached, Boaz and Ruth and their story of persistence and endurance and faithfulness and purity and love and chutzpah and chesed, covenant faithfulness is told. And Mr. So-and-so is forgotten. I want for you, more than anything, that you would step into the vision and the plans of God for your life. That you would discover that God's got more in store for you than you've ever imagined. But you and I are terrified. We're going to lose it all. If we step out there, we're going to lose it all. And let me just tell you, yeah, you probably will. Probably will. 
We are risking everything by following Jesus. We risk family and friends. We, we risk our careers. We risk, we risk the so-called joys of life because we become serious people. We start thinking about the long-term ramifications of decisions that we make and we can no longer live frivolous lives. And we don't live in the casual nature that we used to live in before. And we sing songs like Purify My Heart and Refiner, Come and Bring Your Refiner's Fire and Burn Away the Chaff. And we start singing stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, we risk a lot. We risk it all. But the long-term ramification is the glory of the kingdom of God manifested in and through our families. What do you want? What do you really want? Mr. So-and-so went on and lived his life. He had his inheritance. He had his little farm in Bethlehem, and we never know his name. Okay, he probably lived a pretty casual, fine life. I don't, we have no idea what happened to this in his family. We have no idea. Did he keep what he had? Did he lose it in a raid? We don't know. We, we just don't know. But we know exactly what happened to Boaz and Ruth. So I'm harping on the same point over and over because I want you to get it. I want you to see verse 6, and I want this to be, I want this to be sounding off like a cannon in your heart. Listen, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. If you do not redeem it, God will give it to someone else. If you do not take the challenge to step into the call of God for your life, God will give it to somebody else. What God is going to do in the earth, he is going to do. And he is going to use people to do it. And if he's not going to use you, he will use somebody else. It will and it will get done. The purposes of God cannot be thwarted. They will not be thwarted. The question is whether or not you will be brave enough to step into it. You know, there's that, uh, that wonderful movie, The Lord of the Rings, right? And uh, in that Lord of the Rings, there's... Uh, uh, is it in... Is it in uh, is it in the, uh, the, the, the first one, The Hobbit, or is it in Lord of the Rings where, where the, 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 the hero is so reluctant in the beginning and doesn't want to go? It's in The Hobbit. It's in The Hobbit. So Bilbo Baggins, right? He just does not want to go and leave his comfortable world in order to go and save the universe, basically. <laughs> he doesn't want to do it. And, and Gandalf just presses him. Uh, and, and, and it just, it's a great scene that opening scene of The Hobbit. If you don't watch the rest of the movie, at least watch that scene and think about this. Think about the reluctant heroes. I do want you to know that God is able to take us and redeem us even after we've done the wrong thing. Even after we've said no to Him. Even after we have been Mr. Baloney. God can still redeem us if we will humble ourselves and come to Him and say, I'm sorry, Lord, I missed it. Can I do it again? I think about Peter, our friend, who denied Christ. Don't know that he rejected Jesus, but he denied him in front of all of those people. No, I don't know that guy. Curse, curse, swear, swear. I have no idea what you're talking about. Me, Galilean accent? Yeah, but I don't know that guy. It's possible that we can say no to Jesus and be restored by the Lord into a calling for our lives again. And I offer that as hope because we don't live in yesterday we live today 
And today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the wilderness. But today, if you will hear his voice, surrender, submit, and say, yes, Lord, and follow him today. Jesus told a parable about the two sons who the father says, hey, I need this done. And one son says, I'll do it, dad, and then never does it. And then the other son who says, I'm not going to do that, and then has a change of heart and goes and does it. Which one will he be most pleased with? Clearly, the one who actually does the work, right? So today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. What is the Lord calling you to do? And how can you step into the challenge to take care of those around you that the Lord is inviting you to take care of? Part of the story that I just can't get away from is that it takes generations before they see just how important it was that they did this. Are you willing to do the right thing in faith because it's the right thing to do even if you do not see the result? My brothers, my sisters, you must not say no to the Lord. I want to prophesy into your lives right now. If you honor the Lord and you obey him and you take the step of faith into what he's calling you to do, whether it be caring, sharing, going, staying, whatever it is that God is calling you to do, if you do it, let me prophesy, God will provide everything that you need to make that happen. And Poloni's words over here will not be true in your life. You will not impair your own inheritance. You will not impair your own life savings. You will not impair your own potential for the future. You will not. God is faithful. And he will open up the windows of heaven for you and shower you with blessing in the most impossible and improbable cases because that's what he does. What we have and what we're holding on to is so puny. We worked our whole lives for it. And it thinks, we think we, it's all we can ever amount to. And then Silicon Valley Bank goes belly up. And then Credit Suisse goes belly up. And then suddenly all your savings goes belly up. And your 401k gets canceled because we can't pay it because we're bankrupt as a nation. Okay, maybe that one's a little too far. I, was, I accidentally happened to stumble across the speech of a former president in Texas yesterday. And uh, it sucked me in for about 40 minutes. <laughs> And I thought, oh, God, we have no hope. The world is dying. And then I thought, what a perfect time for us to say yes to Jesus. What a perfect time for us to say yes to Jesus. What a perfect time to take our assets and to plant them solidly in the kingdom of heaven. What a perfect time to take all of our hopes and all of our eggs and put them in that one basket, Jesus' basket. 
What a perfect time for us to say yes and follow the Lord into whatever the clear blue is that he's calling us into. What a perfect time for us to do that because the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. I have 38 seconds left to tell you about Perez, and I guess I'm not going to do that today. I think we've got what we need. Amen. You can stop the clock now, Greg. I beat it. <laughs> Come on, give it to me, bro. Give it to me. 20 seconds. I got it. <laughs> I'm going home with a win today. Would you guys like to pray? Would you? Is that one point going to stick with you today? No baloney here today, right? No, no, no baloney for lunch? No. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what grace you have that you would give us such a story, that you would show us such wonder, that you would even declare that we are your chosen people, that we are the ones that you have said, I am I'm choosing them, and I'm going to build with them, and they're going to carry my kingdom, and they're going to bring the kingdom. They're going to shine in the kingdom. You chose us. You are not reluctant as a deliverer. May we learn from you. And may the same spirit be in us, which is in you, Lord Jesus. May the same mindset be in us that we would surrender our our own expectations, take up the servant's garb, wash the feet of the saints. I love your kingdom, King Jesus. I love the core values of your kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that you are the kind of king that we would gladly give our lives for. For you are faithful and just. You are righteous. And you are fair. Fairer than the fairest of ten thousand. You're beautiful, Lord. Pour out your grace on Living Hope Family Church today and may we have the courage to stand up and not fear. In Jesus' name, amen.